the manifest image. Here we look at art movements, their works, theory, and explore their relevance to us today. I'm Thomas Greengrass. And I'm Ariel de la Garza. Right, so Ariel, what do we have today? Today, we are looking at André Derain. Um, specifically, or our lens for that, are his letters to Vlaminck, who we did uh, a, few, a few weeks, if not maybe a little bit more, ago. And these are from 1905, a selection of letters from 1905 to 1909. Exactly. Originally published in uh, Letters to Vlaminck, Uh, Paris, 1955. Yes, and we're continuing with Darin as part of our exploration of Fauvism more generally. Uh, We've already been critiquing this movement because it's it's a very elusive one. Unlike something like Futurism, which is manifesto-led, we have to piece it all together. It... The term "fauves" or "wild beasts" is itself given to these artists. It's not something wild that they beasts, immediately take on. Uh, yes, wild beasts and a specific kind of orange, um, yeah. which is also the uh, yeah what that means. It's a nice orange, though. It is a nice orange, a kind of vibrant red, reddish orange. But you know, we here at the Manifest Image absolutely abhor um, all art movements that don't have a manifesto. Yes, because they'd make us have a lot more work. I mean, now we have to say what they stood for, if anything at all. Terrible. Come on, take some responsibility. Exactly. (laughs) Laziness. Oh, I'm just going to dedicate myself to painting, Mm -hmm. am I? No, write something. Yes. So now we have to go looking through his letters. And that is what we're going to do. But Mm. before that... A little bio of Dorin. So, uh, as we did with Vlaminck, he as part of the Forbes, is 11 years Matisse's junior. And so he, along with Vlamic and Matisse, are the, the three heads, really, of what we think of as the Forbes movement. Um, and so uh, Derain and Vlamic, their friendship goes back a long way. They're in Chateau, on the outskirts of Paris, uh, with Eugène Carrier, uh, studying classes with him. Matisse also enrolls in these classes. Uh, they are experimental They have this intellectual approach to art. Um, Vlaminck is more intuitive, but nonetheless they're making these experiments in pure colour. Durand himself comes from a middle-class family, and they didn't support his choice to become an artist. And Matisse, in fact, goes, he meets Durand's parents, explains to them that, no, no, this man is very talented, your son is a great man, and actually helps uh, assuage their doubts. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, Derain, Vlaminck and uh, Matisse they attend the 1901 Van Gogh repros- uh, retrospective and um, then our young Derain is forced into national service he himself he wants to become a writer uh, and he's plagued by doubts um, you know, around his painting abilities mm-hmm. so he's, he's, he's sort of a polymath Mm-hmm. And uh, he's hugely influenced by Zola, and uh, along with Remy, they're, they're always discussing uh, Zola. 
And I think uh, by reading some of these letters, you can really get a sense of his literary ability. And also, it's worth mentioning that uh, a lot of these painters, and we covered a little bit of this uh, in the Rousseau, uh, the dream episode, mm. um, but they all had pretty pretty close links to different um, kind of prominent novelists and authors at the time. There was an intense co-mingling um, between these different arts um, in a way that, that probably there isn't today. Uh, so, so yes, so especially, particularly Flaminck and Derain felt themselves very much a part of um, literary as well as uh, visual artistic culture. Yeah, absolutely. It would be, uh, it's very easy for us and if you look at any of a sort of rough chronology of Derain's work, you can see influences by Van Gogh by Cézanne. You can see his influence where he's studying with Matisse in 1905. It really is remarkable how, yeah. how you see that influence yeah. directly. I mean, yeah. but, but, but we have to remember that you've got these symbolists, these symbolist writers that are having such a, a huge influence on these people about how they're seeing the world, how they're interacting. We're going to see uh, uh, references uh, to a broader, not just a visual inspiration and exploration, but also something more like a philosophical and existential view of art, especially Absolutely. by the third letter. Absolutely. Uh, yes, and uh, as just mentioned, uh, Durand will join Matisse in Collier in 1905, later to exhibit in the Salon d'Automne, where we get the birth of the Forbes. Uh, he's released from national service in 1904, I should have mentioned. Uh, he's experimenting with all sorts of things, light brush strokes, suggesting light, air, colour. There's uh, this uh, bubbling, fluctuating space, watercolours that are ambitious, uh, but also uh, very light and delicate. Uh, he's eventually growing in his form and technical ability. And later, also in Collier, Matisse and Durin study Gauguin's work. And we'll see the influence of Gauguin later on in terms of these uh, sort of pastoral, what we might call primitivist, mm -hmm. in quotation marks, works. Uh, we've got uh, Ambrose uh, or Ambroin Volin mm -hmm. uh, as a patron. And, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, he then spent some time in London and you get these fascinating images. You, anyone who studies, as I say, the chronology will see... Uh, works in Estac. Mm -hmm. They will see works in Collioure. Mm -hmm. But then they'll get so many of these images of the Thames, yes. um, of London in the evening. Of Westminster. Of Westminster, mm -hmm. yeah. It, it's, it's overwhelming. It's very, very strange. Yeah. yeah. And very so strange to find that in a French painter. It, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see. And, um, and some of his more, I think, visually uh, exciting images, ones that really bounce there. Not necessarily the best, but ones that really do bounce in terms of colour. I think that they're there. They're in London. Okay. Okay. So... That's we, broadly Derain, right? That's broadly Derain. We can... Later on, I mean, by 1907, there's a question of when does Fauvism end? Probably mm -hmm. around 1907. Uh, its influence carries on, but our three heroes here, they're sort of going their separate ways. They're pursuing their own identities. The question was... Did they ever actually have a shared one? I'm going to say that 
it's, it's very tenuous. We've been talking about this before, but I think in our second letter, a letter written at Collioure on 28th of July 1905, mm-hmm. we're already seeing this. So this is before the birth of the Forbes at the Salon d'Orton. We're already going to see that Darin saying, I've learned a lot from Matisse, but I have some problems with his way of thinking. Not only that, but it's difficult to see from all of these different movements that there really was one cohesive idea that bound them all together um, in an intense way. I mean, the, the one that I can find um, that I think does do some kind of work is this, um, uh, the, the, this experiment in pure color. Mm. Um, I think that's the most important kind of unifying factor for me and that, that, that I've seen. And I think those were his words, not, not ours. And you see that in Matisse, you see that in Vlaminck, you see them in, in Derain, even though they're all incredibly different. There is, at least for a few years, for you know, 1905, 1906, maybe a little bit of 1904, around there, yeah. there is this intense, there's like a primacy of color in a way that um, you don't see in other work. Mm. Then, of course, their semi-impressionistic styling, all these other things are not there. Um, by not there, I mean they're not they don't really feel like cohesive and their own in a way that say the the like divisionistic like futurist style is super distinctive and you can point it from a million miles away. So um, yeah, on that I'm in complete agreement. Mm-hmm. I think people might be tempted to think, well, maybe we can go a little bit deeper than just color. Maybe there's a similarity in focus. Maybe something about decorative art. Maybe something about composition. When we read these letters, Mm -hmm. we're actually going to see that, no, on those principles already, even before Mm -hmm. the movement or, you know, it's been named as the Forbes, even before it's been named, they're already arguing. And uh, when we look at uh, Matisse's notes on a painter, composition is primary. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to see that for Durant Interesting. I also liked how you, how you said that it sounded like we were about to watch a sports match or something. Mm. I, I'm going to add one more. Yeah. Uh, that I think one of the best ways to understand what we think of as Fauvism is rather as a collection of ideas that's bound together by people that knew each other. These mm-hmm. are ideas held by people who knew each other. They had similar influences. And for a little while, I think, yes, it's a fascination with colour. And they were fellow travellers in a search for a style and for a artistic voice. Mm. Um, but really, I think it's separate schools of ideas within a single movement. Perhaps. And yeah. for me, from just these letters alone and then looking at the works, mm-hmm. I think Darin is... He's the one that makes the biggest impact, I think, if oh, you look at it seriously. People are going to talk about Matisse, but no, no, I'm not having it. If only you could see his doughy eyes. Yeah. Listeners. It's... it's He's really smitten. So, shall we uh, move on and look at some of these paintings, do a really quick glance of them? Yes, please. Uh, and then we will properly return after we've discussed the letters. Mm. Yeah? So, first pass, what do we have, Ariel? So, the first one, um, uh, this has to do a little bit with the letters. Uh, the letters are, again, from 1905 to uh, 1909. And in the first letters, he will mention... Um, the Salon des, In- des Indépendants, the Independent Salon, um, uh, in 1905. So we have gone and looked for the paintings that appeared in that salon. 
Not the easiest thing to do. Um, Bit of a mess. Uh, They all seem to have different names, especially if you factor in translations and then the incredibly dodgy um, sourcing you find on things like wiki art. Uh, Just for, you know, just a hypothetical example. A little behind, you know, a little behind the the curtain. you know, we unfortunately aren't strong enough to carry the catalogue raisonné all the way from the library home. No. So the first one we're going to look at is the uh, Le Pec, Hiver, 1904 or 1905. This painting appeared in the salon. There are links below in the description. Um, so it also how does has that other. By the way? It all. It also has other names. Mm. Uh, so in the salon, it was just called Le Pec, which is a place. Um, and then hiver is winter. So there's also uh, one, I think, called a view of winter, or sorry, w- winter the scene. Br- yeah, the bridge. Um, right. So, yeah. So, uh, th- so sorry, it's... it's uh, see? See, I'm, I'm doing exactly what I'm accusing Wikiart of doing. No. So originally it was called Le Port du Pec, so the Le Pec port. Um, there's also winter sun. Um, so this one we found called Le Pec Hiver, but it seems to be the painting. So, all of that nonsense said. Uh. As a first pass, it's, it's got a dominance of three colors, really. Um, uh, you've got this blue, a kind of orange gold. Uh, slightly reddish, but then behind that, I think you get And then your classic this... orange fauve in the background. Oh, really? That was what you think? I actually was going to say white, because I think that there... Mm. It's not negative space exactly. It's deliberately painted white, but I actually get uh, uh, white as this... Uh, sure. This no, no, no. Sort of cyan I see what you mean. Yeah. That's very white in colour, and I think that that contrasts especially with this very heavy, dark, navy blue that you get especially mm-hmm. in the left-hand corner on the bottom. Um... As a scene, I would say it's rather simple. Uh, I think the actual foreground is the worst part. Um, <laughs> so sorry to start on a criticism. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying this from a point of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the background is where it really shines. And especially when we compare it with some of his other works, like uh, some of the images of Westminster, you get that idea. He's, uh, the actual image of the river uh, or the sea here is beautiful. Mm-hmm. The water, the, the, the shimmering light, it's very simple, but very evocative. And you've got these strong orange uh, uh, buildings in the background. And, and they're, they're, they're fantastic. I actually think it would be better if you cut the rest of the image away. Uh, but but it's, it's interesting. It's interesting, though, because um, this reminds me, at least that criticism reminds me of a, a painting that we talked about in the Vlaminck episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was... A view of the Thames with with some uh, with some houseboats um, floating around there. We mentioned it, and so you have this like the majority of the painting is taken up by this brown cobblestone mm. that is not particularly sightly. Um, in this case, though, you have this interesting figure doing who knows what with a very very sketchily drawn face in the foreground, creating a very odd perspective where it seems like maybe there's a little hill and there's some stairs that lead you down um but it it messes with the perspective in a in a kind of interesting interesting way almost like a fisheye lens mm. 
Um, but yes, that's I, true. I'm going to continue. That's being, what I say. Yeah. I'm going to continue being glib and say that, yeah, you're absolutely right. It does mess with perspective. And I can't blame him because I'm mean, looking at the figure. They look very ill. They've got a green face and red eyes. Yes, and hands. That's, that's someone that looks ill. That's true. And I don't know where those hands are, but they're pointing towards a crotch. Uh, see, I, I you thought you were going to say no. that. I was trying to be classy. Well, you brought up the but figure. I was happy to talk about the background. Medium. Okay, so you know, let, us, <laughs> let us know, listeners. Uh, yeah. e- e- email us. But if you, uh, well, you look you at the cow on the right. Well, it's, first of all, it's not a cow. What is it? That is patently a horse. Uh, Look at the animal on the right. No. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I, I really think that this is a weak image. And my suspicion is we're not looking at all of the images from the, uh, uh, the uh, Salon of Independence. But he's very tetchy about. Sure. I, I, kind of, I don't mind it as much as you do, weirdly enough. But yes, I can see that. Tell me the redeeming qualities of this image. I mean, I think you did say it. the background is really <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's interesting that that look. We'll talk about it more later. Yes, I don't want to take up too much more time with it. No. but I can Top conjure up some very things. Very good. Ah, <laughs> the next one. Oh God, <laughs> this is the old tree, nineteen oh five. Difficult to tell what size this is from the. I mean, from from the image you're seeing on your phone, probably. Mm. I wish it was smaller. Mm. So I couldn't see it. I don't mind it as much. It's strange. It has like a, a sickly pale green. It's a very close image of a tree um, that seems a husk of what it once was. Mm. That bloke is transformed into a tree. All right. And on that note... <laughs> no, what's it in yeah. the French? Come on. Huh? Let's, let's be serious. What's it in the French? Le... The old tree. Le vieil arbre. That's it. There is a sickly quality to it. It is... Uh, it, it's actually decadent, mm-hmm. it's I would a decadent say. If we tree. want to be yeah, a little bit more serious, I won't joke about. Uh, though it does make me want to. Mm-hmm. However, I will save this. I will save this. Save it for later. Yeah. So the next one uh, is one I chose mm. that I found uh, interesting. It's called, again, take these titles with a grain of salt. We've attached pictures to these. Um, all we can be sure of is that it's most likely him that painted them. Yeah. Um, uh, Ball of Soldiers in Surezne, 1903. Um, I picked this one because it seems uh, a little bit like Manet to me, um, particularly, oh. say, the trousers. So, uh, again, briefly, it's uh, uh, a man, a very short man, dancing with a woman. Who knows in what situation, but it seems rather lascivious because his white gloved hand is on her bottom and she doesn't seem very happy about that and there are three other uh, military men looking on i don't know their ranks exactly Uh, one of them seems higher rank than the others so in any case highly um, naturalistic apart uh, from on the top left hand corner again uh, you, uh you get this strange sure I wouldn't say it's highly, highly naturalistic. It, I mean, there's well, some caricaturesque features. The lighting is a little expressionistic. It's very red. It's very colorful. Pretty great. And you have uh, the trousers that are sort of outlined in a in an almost cartoonish way, reminiscent of Manet. Uh, those like little elements of like heightened cartoonish language that he uses in little places. Well, see, I, if I can further develop the mm-hmm. the uh, what I meant by the highly naturalistic. It's naturalist 
in, Netflix we've scene. Got, it's a Netflix yeah. scene, but also it has it has uh, additional qualities. The forms are all there. They look possibly slightly comical, mm-hmm. but nonetheless all natural. It's really in the colour that things start to go off. And I would put it as something like um, a lot of symbolism, I think. You get these naturalistic scenes, mm-hmm. but then the analogies that are used, they throw it off. Uh, and so here you've got this red-faced man. Mm-hmm. He doesn't look red-faced from having a, a hard run or something. It no, is, it's a light. Yeah, this I'm is entirely a light. light. Reminds me a little bit now uh, of the Vlaminck portrait of Derain. Mm. Um, really? Like intense red face. But, th- but this is but nonetheless anyway. much earlier. This is 1903. Yeah. Here there is nothing that we would normally call forth, mm-hmm. although with the, with the changes of colours it might be worth mentioning. Absolutely. So the next one uh, is Still Life on a Table 1904. Um, it is a big, big, beautiful cloth uh, laid out and other things. The light seems um, either from a kind of late afternoon kind of light before mm-hmm. you start to go into twilight um, or an artificial one, mm-hmm. probably the, 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 the former. Fabulous um, creases we have, very detailed. I think... Uh, this you, again reminds me of, of a kind of impressionistic thing of maybe yeah. Manet, maybe a little bit of Cezanne, something Yeah, like I was thinking Cezanne. It's... it's I, I, more think it's I think it's... Kind of wonder. I think it's splendid. Yeah. I, this is great. Yeah. Do you really like this one? I really. Do. I think this is great. Yeah. It's a good cloth. I'm a sucker for a good cloth. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. that's why you like the trousers so much. <sighs> Let's not go that before. far. Yeah. So the next one, music, 1904, and I think you picked this one. I did. Um, so music. We will get to this later, but. Derain, I think of all the Forbes, during this time, he experiments with so many different styles. It's not just about colour for him. He uses negative space. He's using the, the base canvas. He's using divisionists. He's using high intensity, highly saturated colours. And then at the same, uh, then other times, uh, he'll make them bright. And then other times, he'll make them very dull. He'll lower the cues. He's so varied. Sometimes he's painting these landscapes, cityscapes. Other times he's got the figure as as uh, uh, as forward. Here it's called the dance. We have this wonderful pastoral scene, mm-hmm. and these pastorals I think are going to play quite a big role. You've got that feeling of okay, people are talking about primitivism, Gauguin. You've also got references to these uh, these kind of Eden esque scenarios, but it's so playful, it's so light, and I think when you're really focused on the idea of form, learning how to use negative space is a very special trick. And you can actually see, once we get to talking about his ideas of light and shadow in the second letter, just how much he's experimenting. And, but he's actually showing his work and actually created finished works. Perhaps these other artists have got... Uh, you know, they've made maybe notes and things like that elsewhere where they've played about with colour. He's the only one who actually sees it through to conclusion mm. by making all these various works, and it's only in this handful of years. And so I love this. And this, I mentioned music, 1904, because he comes back to this again with works like Bacchus. Ah, Bacchus, Bacchus Dance. Dance. This is 1906. Yes. Uh, it's a 
most likely a watercolor or a, uh, if not an ink drawing. Mm. And I think this, again, it's in the style of music. We have heavy use of negative space. There is a, 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 a Japanese influence there. Mm-hmm. And again, you get that through The Van sort Gogh of fluid well. lines of ink drawing. There's a little bit of that here. Absolutely. Again, negative space of the bodies, apart from this one red figure that seems to be in this ecstasy. And again, fabulous use of color. We've got the intense red of this one ecstatic figure the dark blue that surrounds them, picking them out from the sky, and then this gold just on the left-hand side. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a huge improvement in terms of development um, uh, it, when you compare yes, it. Yes, absolutely. Um, but it's, and particularly so mm. when we move from Bacchus stance to dance. Yeah, again, 1906. This is a work that gets mentioned a fair amount. Mm-hmm. Um, is it one of his more famous paintings? Yeah, um, especially because in 1906 he's doing a lot of these London scapes. Um, but here people are quick to mention, well, it seems to be influenced by Gauguin. Um, I think this is less subtle. It's very vivid. Um, and here you don't have as much, you don't have any play with negative space. It's, again, the intensity is all the way there. Saturation is all the way there. It does seem quite uh, 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 humid. Mm-hmm. Again, a quality that you get in a lot of Gauguin's work. I actually think that this is a step back. I know that some uh, have commented that these figures seem a little bit more posed. They don't seem very natural. They seem quite gangly, as if he can't quite get that uh, uh, Eden-esque, uh, Rousseauian state of nature thing going on. I find it I find it very difficult to see with a lot of these paintings um it feels like one is parsing a lot of different influences um and trying to look for the painter underneath and with Vlaminck it was much harder I mean mm. I think Vlaminck is a, is a, is less is a is a lesser painter than Derain I think that that is very true um yeah, there's something here, but again, you know, there is some. There are tones of Matisse. This is, I think, an interesting painting. It's a very interesting painting. You, you, you have that Gauguin-esque, I guess, theme, but there's that that Rousseau jungle. Mm. But you also have really strange abstract birds. It's interesting. And that that completely off kilter hand that looks like cubism, frankly. Oh, don't say that, because mm-hmm. Apollinaire actually says, in an offhand quote, that uh, Derain is the founder of Cubism. I can see, I can see what he means. Maybe, maybe there's a little. He never develops it, unfortunately. No. So, uh... so the next painting. Uh, sorry to keep moving on, yes, but yes, we yes. have to. Uh, the Palace of Westminster. This is one of the many Londonscapes. Um, mm. It's a sort of beautiful off-kilter image of Westminster almost under a spectacular fireworks display, but I think it might just be a sunset. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it's truly, truly beautiful, this image. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I, the London images, I think, are some of my favourite works of art ever. Um, really, really, I think... Oh my God. I love that tone, that luminosity. It's the same reason that I loved Rousselot's uh, uh, Parfum. Mm-hmm. 
if you remember. Yeah. I gushed about that. I, I love that attempt to depict light like that. But I think you also here get a, a, an additional... Well, well, performer wasn't light, but that was a synesthetic quality. It was meant to be perfume, obviously. Um, but here... I've cheated slightly in mm. that I've read the letters, and mm -hmm. so now when I look at it, I find it very difficult to divorce mm. my thoughts from the third letter, from this. From this. But, but it's so full. Mm -hmm. It's so full of energy. It's... Uh, but a, a strange kind of energy. It's not um, a get up and go. It's more like a liveliness, a, mm. an assertion of being. Mm. It's that kind of energy. It's... This thing is here. It, it displaces other things. But you've now moved it on. I have, to... I have. To Martigues Landscape, 1908. So here we tried to find a few pictures that were closer to 1909, which is a little bit difficult, given our limited means. Um, but uh, this one was, was kind of wonderful. Um, Do you want to mention this as well with the second one as well? Together? Yes, so Martigues Landscape and Landscape near Martigues um, seem... Because that won't confuse anyone. Quite similar, exactly. Uh, 1908 as well. So, I don't know if there's too much to say about these other than they're quite beautiful. It, it seems like he's going through a different style altogether again. Mm. Um, these don't seem similar to me at all. Like the West, There's no pointillism like the Westminster stuff. There is no Gauguin for me. Maybe still some Cezanne. But again, things have shifted, and now we're... There's a Cubist influence here. There is definitely a Cubist influence. In both of these this images, me a lot we've of, moved towards a Cubist uh, yeah. sort of affair. These remind me a lot of Diego Rivera's views of... Um, oh boy, this is going to be Toledo? I might be wrong, but his views of Spanish cities. They remind me a lot, a lot, a lot of those views. Um, yeah. But one From of the, the standout things as well for me is that... Um, We've moved away from these very light, bright, pure colours. Now we're towards darkness. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of evening scapes. Yeah. These are moody, these are simplistic, analytic images. We've broken down our forms. They're far simpler. Where before you might have had, you know, hundreds, thousands of vectors, now straight lines. Mm -hmm. Here, there, that's it. That's not to say that there isn't subtlety. Mm -hmm. I think there is a lot of subtlety still in the colour. But we've really broken it down in terms of the world that we're depicting. It's pixelated, this world. In a, in a, in a sense, yeah. yeah. Well, it's broken down into its concepts, as opposed yes. to pixels. Yeah. So, this is interesting. So, now um, that we have seen some of these images, let's dive into the... Uh, into the letters. Let's dive into the letters. So, we have three letters. One, the first is from Estac. It's undated, in, uh, uh, but we know it's 1905, but we don't know specifically when 1905. And this is one selection from it. I, uh, one of the first remarks that I made was that actually he's going to break with Matisse over composition. Mm -hmm. Here, however, we first have him actually making... Uh, uh, something of uh, of, uh, uh, of of a connection to uh, uh, composition. So I'm going to quote. Uh, he begins with a problem: If one does not attempt decorative art, all one can do is increasingly to purify the transposition of nature. 
We didn't do this on purpose, solely for the sake of colour. The design runs parallel. So he's, he's already accepting quite explicitly when he's talking to Vlamig, I want my art to be decorative. I want my art to be decorative. We're not just going to solely copy nature. We have to do a little more than that. And this will be a big thing for Dirac. He continues, all in all, I can see no future accepting composition because in working from nature, I am a slave to such stupid things that my emotions feel the repercussions of it. He also then says, I don't see the future as corresponding to our trends. So mm -hmm. we see that he's, uh, we're moving away, we're moving towards abstract art, and he seems to be self-aware of this. He's self-conscious of this. Mm -hmm. But here he's saying that, no, 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 composition is what's going to lead the way, because it has to be in some sort of arrangement, and then also decoration that we're going to have it. Mm. Otherwise, if you just accept things as they are, that's nature. Interesting. I, I saw this first letter as slightly different. Um, oh, really? The way I saw it was that although he does see composition as the most interesting thing, he sees it, uh, he sees this fundamental tension between um, the, the sort of objectivity of the world or depicting the world in some sense objectively. Mm -hmm. um, I also took that to mean quite literally objects, like things in the world. Um, and then... Uh, for the separation between that and subjectivity of trying to give oneself, put some of oneself in the work. Um, that is, I think, a bit what you were saying about decorative, right? Um, but for him, I think he finds that the way to bridge would seem to be two, comp two contrasting incompatible demands on the artist to both express oneself and to do so with the raw material of the world. Um, I think the way he solves that is light. So when he talks about composition, I think he means composing with light, composing with color in a way that, that is incredibly interesting. So he says things like, um, <clears throat> let's see, to compose visually, to amuse oneself in composing pictures like Denise, which are things one can see, is ultimately nothing but the transposition of a theatrical set. I think that the problem is rather to group forms in the light and to harmonize them simultaneously with the materials available. Mm. So I think he's starting to talk about a subtlety and playfulness in spaces that light will allow. Um, to take that like maybe twilighty area of light, to play with it and to compose with that, with color as opposed to composing with forms, um, like say Titian would, right? Mm. Where Titian composes beautifully, fantastic these images, right? With people moving and the, the sort of, you know, diagonal lines and so on that, that make these images as striking as they are. That, Derain is here talking about something to do with light mm. that he can play with while still using the raw materials of the world. I think that's a, a, a really great quote, and I'm glad you brought mm. that one up because uh, we've had the light. That's fascinating, but it's, you've got three things going on there. You've got the objects, you've got the light, mm -hmm. and it's, that's what's going to illuminate. But then you've got the materials that you use to portray it. Exactly. And, and that's, a, that's a very, very modern in the sense of early 20th century. Mm -hmm. They become fascinated by 
are we just trying to make a, a, a mirror of the world? Mm-hmm. Or are we also trying to show that this is, say, painted? Or that this is sculpted? Where also the material has to sing in a particular way, where it is itself as well as something else, potentially. Not just that, but, but he's painting with light, not just mm. paint, paint. Mm. Right? Oh, you th- he, okay. he, there's, there, there's a kind of diegetic concern, right? The concern is within the painting itself. It's not necessarily with the materials that one is using to paint the thing. That may not... I mean, he might have been talking about that. I don't think he was talking about that. I think he's mm. talking about painting with light within the image that he's painting. Um, and in fact, I think it's that direct concern with the thing being painted with the painting itself, not the paint that one mm. paints with, um, that makes it so interesting. Because um, he, he is kind of engaged in that. So another one is to that he's aiming to a uh, slightly modified quote, so it makes sense mm-hmm. out of context, um, that he's aiming to, dis- that they're aiming to disengage themselves from objective things. And on the other hand, they retain them both as origin and as a final aim. So there is this straddling of subjective and objective that I think is going to be one of the crucial like concerns of uh, the painter in the first half and maybe even till now uh, of the 20th century. That, that like gap between real and not real. But at the same time, he is making things that are decorative and beautiful. So it's not, yeah. you know, Lucian Freud talking about like the hideousness of man or something yeah no and it's, it's a wonderful way of putting it as well that no our initial and also final aim mm-hmm. that's where it all comes from mm-hmm. it is the object but then around that through that you're allowed to then diverge you can have an expression in how you do that and I but think not just that I, yeah. I think and we're going to come to this later but it's it isn't just that one can do this it's that one is an artist in a meaningful sense has a duty to. Mm. How about the second letter? Second letter. So, the second letter takes place uh, at Collier, 28th of July, 1905. And there are two things that are especially important about this, and he's aware of them. First is a new concept of light. Mm. So, yeah, we're carrying on with light. And... Again, rather elusively. The negation of shadow. Yes. Yes. That helps, doesn't it? Yes, wonderful. Ariel, what is your new conception of light? Well, of course, it's the negation of shadow. (laughs) Excellent. Not that shadow is the negation. Obviously, there's a reversal there. We've got the writer. You're expecting the standard idea, the Newtonian idea. What is is shadow? What is darkness? It's the negation of light. Mm -hmm. It's a lack of light. Here, no, we've got it inverted. So there's a literary play here, but then that also then kicks into gear our mental faculties. And he, he just carries on. This is how he's going to explain it. The light is very strong. The shadow's very clear. Hmm. And I think that these are choice words there. I don't know what the French is. Uh, I don't know what he's written, so there could be translation issues. But I think we have, because we've got so little here, we have to be so specific about how we understand these things. Strength comes from the light, but clarity comes from the shadows. Mm. And this then continues with, shadows are a world of clarity and luminosity, which is uh, uh, opposed to sunlight. Yes. Now... The way I've written that also is, shadows are a world of clarity and luminosity, that this is the the world of reflections. mm. 
That's what he's talking about as well. Within shadows or sort of the world of reflections. I found very No, uh, no, sunlight is a world of... Uh, Sorry, sunlight well, is a world of reflections. Yes. Yeah. Now, there were a few ways that I tinkered with interpreting that. One was a very basic one, which was that, okay, what does shadows do? Uh, what does this darkness do? Well, it provides... How does it provide clarity? It provides you with an outline. Mm. It gives you a border. If there is a figure and a shadow is cast, uh, uh, say, on the background, that difference in, in light tone and shadow, that gives out the image. But I'm not sure that that's right at all. Again, I was tempted by that because of his experiments in things like dance with negative space. Hmm. So he's clearly already thinking about these things. Uh, but then by the time you get to, uh, say, the uh, London images, or also the images at Chateau uh, and Collioure, uh, you've got a sense that, no, 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 even the darkness has to sing. It's, it's, it's a positive quality. It's not an mm. absence. It is itself a thing. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a positive thing or not is open to question. I don't think he's interested in its normative value. Mm. It's rather a, a, a purely aesthetic one. Clarity and luminosity. The idea of shadows, the antithesis of luminosity, being called such, yeah. being identified as such, this is a very problematic thing. But I think that when you then look at images like that, when you see darkness, it forces you to look at it in so, a different way. So now I want to... Uh, talk again um, about this painting the ball of soldiers now i know that it's uh, from 1903 mm. the ball of soldiers in surness suresne um, it's it's earlier but i get the sense here and in in maybe some some other there are other paintings where this is true maybe the portrait of matisse from later on um, maybe even in that vlaminck uh, painting of derain himself mm-hmm where shadows start to become something other than just shadows. Mm. Shadows take on this like strong yellow orange color. There are these hues that like cover people's faces and it, in the different hues, for example, of the soldier to the far right here or the one to the far left either, um, these hues are almost like sort of chunks of color, um, almost geometric shapes that build up the composition that is a soldier in sh- hidden in shadow. Mm-hmm. So here, I, that, this is how I interpret um, Vlaminck talking about shadow as light in a way. Really? Shadow is different. Uh, as, yeah. I'd be very cautious because he says that this is something that he discovers on this Collier trip. Well, maybe this is when he discovers it, but here's a, just the immediate but thing maybe- that I see. Yeah. And see, it's a very strange one to, to think about, especially in comparison. He does say that this new understanding of light will actually aid in composition. Okay, well, look, another one that you don't like. Um, oh, but God. the old tree. The yes. old tree is actually, I think, a good example of what I mean. It's actually quite hard to find shadow in it, mm. isn't it? Yes. Very, I mean, maybe the back, the inside of the tree is dark. But other than that, it's very hard to find shadow. But you have this green, you have these other different colors that one can interpret in many different ways. But perhaps here you start to see this 
using of shadow as light in a way. Yes, I think I think shadow has to be a positive Rather, quality. It's, this is a way to say it. Shadow no longer hides color, no longer dims color. It, it changes is color. It. it is exactly. Mm. It is color. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and then his second, his second point, uh, with which which is that, yeah, I've learned a lot of things with Matisse on my trip, such as how to eradicate division of tone. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Brown we says, should divide tone once more. <laughs> yes, we should divide tone once more. It doesn't make sense to me, mm-hmm. and I've. I've ignored him now. I played about with it. I'm not going to do it anymore. And I think there's there's interestingly not that much more to say other than what he says himself, which is it is a world which self-destructs when pushed to the absolute. Yes, which is a very interesting... I, I, I think when we come to Matisse, we are going to see that, yeah, he has this idea of harmony, of fluidity, and there can be no space for, for these kind of jarring images. It just says that the artist has rushed the image it's not soft enough. You need to work over it to actually dull the transition. Sure. Whereas, I, I, and I think it complements the uh, the conception of light that he has. If I, shadow exactly. itself is to be a color, as it were, I think that was the, the neatest way that we can put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then yes, dissonances themselves, you could interpret that is the them whole as a point. harmony. That is the but whole point. Yes, they, yeah. they actually become integral. And moreover, if you think of the, this tension that he has between the objectivity and the subjectivity, mm. um, he seems also in this letter particularly to be very concerned with the expressive power of his art. So we yes. can we can interpret expressive power as this co- concern with color, as this sort of concern with composition within color, within shadow, as this kind of deepening of this. Um, then, obviously, if you do what Matisse does, composition becomes this sort of geometric composition to the extreme. I mean, all you have are literal cutouts, well, which, I, which are really beautiful, but they... division of tone, but boy, you end you, up with a, with a single colour. You end up with Malevich. Yes, I think that that's... Yeah. You're, you're going to, eventually, you're going to just get a single colour. If, yeah. if it's... Uh, yeah, you, if it, it leads more, to minimalism, yes. is what this leads to. You can have such a subtlety of transition of colour that you don't even recognise mm-hmm. it, because imagine, let's speculate that you could even make it subtler, sure. so that you don't recognise, even though the colours are changing. If you can't recognise it, if you can't visually actually detect any difference, you're looking at something that's effectively monotone. Yeah, exactly. So where you possibly had, say, a rainbow, now you have the abyss. <laughs> 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 so that is the self-destruction yeah. when pushed to the absolute. So, with that being said, the third letter. The third letter. Oh my goodness! Uh, this I mean, in a way, these forty-seven minutes have been have been but a prelude. No, yes, but, but we 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 really did like it. My goodness. This is one that I would love to do like a pithy summary on. Mm-hmm. I won't do it. Instead, I'll just say that he begins by saying, I'm at this place. It's 1909. There's some great landscapes here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do some. I don't want to do some, mm-hmm. but I'm going to do some. And that's why we had our 1908, 1909 landscapes there. It says, it's against my will almost. I don't feel the need for landscapes, nor for portraits, nor for still lives. I've had wonderful feelings, whose grandeur can only be matched by a total possession of forms, which I use equally to create the grandeur. It's very difficult to possess a landscape. Mm. 
very elusive language, but very rich. When reading that, I get a tingling up my spine. I think that this is fascinating because here you see an artist who's ex- he's, he's been voracious in his experimentation. We mentioned the dance, he's got the forms, he's got negative space, he's got divisionism, he's got these impressionists, he's playing with Cezanne, he's playing with Gauguin. He's doing all these different things and he's not finding anything that's quite quenching him. Mm-hmm. He's unsatisfied with all of it. And now he's just talking about genres and going, no, none of these things are working. I don't want any of them. I need something that can actually express something that's inner. I need something like that. And actually, the expression of it has to be done by a possession. It's a kind of understanding. Mm. It's a very strange thing. It's, it's metaphysical in it, uh, uh, what you've got going on here. A total possession of forms. And you can't possess a landscape. Mm-hmm. I take that to mean that it has to be a kind of a certain kind of experience, probably not knowledge. I don't think it's a knowledge or understanding, but it has to be something like an experience of the thing mm-hmm. that's going to relate him to it. A kind and of that you direct total experience of yes. it to be able to synthesize it through your experiences mm. and to express that totality that you've just felt. No? Something like this. Maybe? Absolutely, and and I think this is going to force him to try and uh, start portraying these ob- uh, these specific uh, shapes in different ways. Hmm. I think that that's why he's going to be led down this path of minimalism uh, as a, in a bid to try to kind of get it. Then you get a further development. So here, if, yes. if you were wondering, we're thinking of the Martigue landscape mm. and the uh, landscape near Martigue. Mm. Um, these are the ones that we're probably yes, talking about. So these are 1908. So mm-hmm. these are some of the things that's roughly in this style that he's working at that point. Um, he continues... Why, why, why prefer a landscape saying? Well, it's got a harmonious shape, he thinks, and in its very essence carries its own title. Here we're going to see that he's moving towards abstraction. Because mm. clearly, by, uh, by the inverse, if he's, if he's interested in this kind of grandeur of feeling that mm-hmm. is self-replicating, that's going to be very difficult to understand. It's going to lead him into the realm of abstraction. And then he carries on with a reference to Delacroix. What he says, Delacroix, is true. Nature is a dictionary. One draws words from it. But more important than the dictionary is the will to write, the unity of our own thought. And then we get this wonderful thing. It's worth pausing here. This is nothing other than the translation in spatial form of our virility, of our cowardice, of our sensitivity, and of our intelligence. All of this amalgamated constitutes this personality which is realized in a shaped form. Hmm. I, I, I just I think it's it's so wonderful. You're actually getting a, a separation of not just the artist from the artwork. Actually there's a connection. I think you're getting hmm. a separation of the human being from the world. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, 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 it is beautiful. Um, it's beautiful, that idea that nature is a dictionary. So he has this overriding concern with the expressive power of his art. And perhaps this really is what he meant earlier, right? With um, you figuring out a way to unlock this dictionary and use it as your own 
Um, and that seems to be his overriding concern, particularly because of the next, uh, the next few sentences. Yeah, so uh, he, he's rather, he starts to open up even more, I think. Mm-hmm. He beca- he's, there's such a profound honesty in what he says here. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of, uh, what do I call it? It's an, it's an honoured nakedness. Mm-hmm. It's something that's, it's a vulnerable nakedness. It's this honesty that, that, that comes out. He feels very, very weak. He acknowledges his own frailty. Mm-hmm. He says, sure, this image that I've submitted to the independence, it could have been better perhaps in certain ways. What's fascinating here is he doesn't, uh, he's not rejecting any kind of objective or similar notion of art. Perhaps there could be such a, a notion where we can talk about art, uh, art objects in a separate way as being objectively beautiful. Um, and maybe his work has failed to do that. But he then carries on and says... So he says, thus for my painting, for the Antépendant, must it have been better than it was? No, it would have spoken more absolutely in its intention if it hadn't been kept... Uh, no, it would have spoken more absolutely in its intention if it hadn't kept being so confident about the direction it was heading in. I think it's a mistake to pretend we only have a good side. Showing our faults and our incapacities is the best statement of absolute value to our neighbor. So while my canvas is not what it should have been, it's enough for another to understand that it is mine alone. It's already something. And I take that it's already something, not as, and that's something. Mm. I take it more as, and it already is. Yes. It is something. It exists. So it's, it's, uh, that's uh, very beautiful. You can see that, as I say, should it have been better? Could it have been better? Yes, he acknowledges this as an idea that makes sense. But you've got a very different idea of art, and I think this mm-hmm. is where it ties in with something that we might call expressionism, uh, but of a very much more nuanced kind, because he will go on, he'll go on here, uh, and even make fun of himself. Um, you, uh, it's so humbling to read this. You are only good for decorative art. Good, that's perfectly all right, he sort of says to himself, you know. But my intelligence and my will create a reality, showing that they want to exceed the gifts which have been given to me. He's reaching beyond himself. Mm. And he continues, even if I don't create an absolute for myself, I at least give it my all, the equal to what I understand and what I want. And then you've got this very vulnerable line. It would take a long time to write to you about this. We have to remember, we're voyeurs here. Mm-hmm. These are letters that he's written to Vlamic. They've been friends for a long time. When when Dorin's in military service, they're communicating. Is they're worried about different things, stresses. Here you've got the man laid bare, I think, and he's reflecting greatly, and he's using art to do that. But it might be a mistake to psychoanalyze the man through the art. I actually mm-hmm. think a much better approach would be to see the art in these uh, uh, in these psychological and existential terms. 
And I think that that will be our lens. But I, if we just go a little further, um, and he carries on, this interests me beyond measure, this stuff that he wants to say, a modern view of life. And he says, you know, what do human beings want? They want happiness. And he says, you know, you can live in a disinterested way and you know, live beyond joy and unhappiness. You can live a kind of ascetic, distant, mm. cynical lifestyle, you know, where you sort of just close yourself off, but you're very knowing about it, very wise, above it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but then, he, you know, he's so clear here. But when you come back down to earth, you feel it all the more, all these emotions. And to the maximum of joy corresponds the maximum of unhappiness. You've got all of his, all of his uh, failures, his cowardice, his warmth, all showing through. Then you get this little playful thing, the joke. And it can be read as cynical. I think it's a positive thing, though, here. Mm-hmm. He says that there's one thing that can save painting, and that's the joke. The joke shines through everything. The joke is all-powerful. What can your joke do? He says, you know, when we look at something like greatness something that's of a great stature, nobility, anything that wants to be like that, how silly. Mm-hmm. It's a joke. We need to actually... I think it's not... It's a kind of playfulness, because I, I don't think he can be fully wise about it. He seems too vulnerable and to be too close to his emotions to be fully uh, um, wise to it. But I also don't think it's a, uh, an exactly a, a ha-ha in the face of it all. It's something a bit subtler. Mm. And he just continues with, we are too uncertain of the progress of ideas in our era to desire a definite character. We have to submit to unconsciousness. There's some proto-surrealism for you. So proto-surrealism, but I want to, to draw out... Um, mm. or, no, continue, continue, then I'll, then I'll say this. As for the result, he says, and this is my last line that I'll read from it, we cannot learn from our own lessons. Now, this is an ambiguous term. I don't know what it is in the original French. Mm-hmm. But from the way that it's translated here, I get a kind of honesty where we will make mistakes again, even ones that we've done before. But also, but it's forward-looking. So I've done it in the past, but also I will do it again. It's a very ambiguous letter, but it's so beautiful, and I recommend everyone read it. It's such a breath of, of fresh air in comparison with something like Marinetti, which is so out there, so bold. Mm. There's such tenderness here, and it's, it's so sparsely, concisely written. You know, you've got such a wealth of ideas all playing about here. And this isn't a, you know, a statement on technique. Um, this isn't a, you know, like a, a divisionist uh, colour theory. Nor is it a theory on composition. This is purely about what an artist is and how they relate to their work and what their work should should do. And I think here, again, as you said, he doesn't preclude there being such a thing as better or worse art. In fact, mm-hmm. he seems nah, to tacitly believe in that yeah. in some way. But there is there is again another competing for a lack of a better word, I'm going to call it a duty, although I don't know if it's a duty in any specific sense. But on the one hand, you have this pull towards doing something objectively good. 
and or objective in some way, um, sticking to some measure that we can see. And on the other, you have something, the pull to do something that is your own. For Vlaminck, and I think perhaps in for everyone, the truest thing you can do is do something that is your own. Because we're all liable to fail at doing the thing that is objective mm-hmm. in whatever way that might be. But only when is it your own can you can you stand up in the face of it. Otherwise, if you kind of try for the other thing and fail, it's, 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 it's a joke. So it's sort of, it's against greatness. Sort of what wants to be great is stupid a little bit. And I think that's, for me, that's incredibly moving, not only because he acknowledges his shortcomings as an artist uh, and in general, but that is it. It's If it's your own, then that's, that's so much more than we can say about a lot of things. In, in this podcast, um, uh, listener, you will often see Thomas and I make snide remarks, mostly me, at um, painters or current artists. I think one of the big things that lead me to do those things, not only that, beyond the discussion of whether or not it's good art, I'd often say it's not, but it's, it's often, that discussion seems appropriate because there's this complete lack of, of, of vulnerability and of, of reality to the art that's being made. And like something like Jeff Koons is just dross. It doesn't matter. And it's not his own. I mean, it's, uh, could be, I guess, but it's just empty, empty of, of something. But even though it is a big joke here, yeah, he lays himself bare, and and you you see these paintings in a different way. And I think any any artist out there, or any anyone who's been in a creative endeavor and struggling, whether a writer or a sculptor or writing a play, anything, you get that you get that deep worry, that deep fear, that gnawing at you. You know, can you do this? Is it a, is it a worthwhile thing? Here you've got Dara saying quite clearly I have this intelligence and a will to create a reality showing that I want to exceed the gifts Mm. that have been given and even if I don't well at least I gave it my all and what more can you do what more can one really do It's 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 this. I mean, it's, this it's, it's that it's, it's your it's your all. Mm. Right. I'm going to mm. uh, draw it uh, into a slight analogy. I think that there's a way of interpreting and understanding uh, a, a general uh, quality of the man and of the art, uh, and I'm going to relate it to uh, Spinoza. Mm. For Spinoza, the world is it's full. It's saturated. Things only exist, and they have a canatus. Your duty, what is it? Uh, everything has, uh, uh, everything asserts itself. And human beings, they assert themselves in part through morality. That's how we have to be. And I think he, he you know, he's got this idea of colour, of shadow. It's its own thing, and it exists. And here is Durin, the man, and he exists as well. And he acknowledges how he has to move forward. Mm. 
Everyone wants happiness, and modern life fascinates him, and he can't get it all down. And then when we then look back at the works, so why did we have the first pass? We have the first pass so that once we've read these letters, especially the third, does it change the way that we appreciate these images? I think in a way it does, for me. I think it does. Difficult to say how, exactly. Mm. It seems to have a, an additional kind of sensitivity to it, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So, um, Le Pec, which we were, you know, I was mocking so clearly earlier on. Now there seems to be, you know, th th that kind of, of uh, sensitivity that you get almost with the recognition of Monk's The Scream. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you know, this little character that I was joking about that's, that's green with red eyes, you actually see a, a, a kind of honesty in the world, even though it has very little resemblance to reality. Well, you focus on the details a lot more. Yeah. I also think that, you know... The squares, you, you, the sort of micro-compositions within the great image. Yeah. You see his light in a different way. You see shadow as... Not shadow, but as color, which is mm. a beautiful way to think about it. Yeah, it's nice. And the dissonances that you get, sure, you know, the foreground, it is rougher than the background, but maybe that's precisely how it should be in order and that's, to create that dissonance. But that's entirely what they do. I mean, this, the, this prominence of the foreground mm. is, is, is um, almost carries through in mm. most of these things. Um, uh, what about the tree? The tree, again... Uh, I you still, still, you still hate the tree, don't you? I, it's not a favourite of mine, but I'm more receptive to it. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I think it is a rather uh, a sickly image. I think it is one uh, uh, that actually is close to something like, uh, you know, the, the, the ideas of, you know, it's, it's an image, it's Baudelaire mm. put in pictorial form. That's what I get from it. Mm. Um, I do get a man, and again, Baudelaire was interested in modern life. He's a man that, you know, paints the city, but he uses organic terms as well, you know. I mean, think of things like spleen, you know, so visceral, so organic. And yet he could be talking about, you know, the, the steaming misery of a city, mm. the things that happen in dark alleys. And, and then something like the negative images of the dance, uh, and Bacchus dance. I think you've got excitement. Interesting. Yeah. Um, a great respect to form. Everything seems also, to be mm -hmm. asserting itself. And you notice other things. I mean, that, that hand, that kind of cubist hand, and the swirls of color. Absolutely. Yeah. I see that the importance of the dissonance for him. Mm. And just to, to bring it back to what he was saying uh, uh, earlier on, you know, he, he doesn't want to paint landscapes anymore. He doesn't want to paint these images. He's got this, this whole universe in his head, this universe of feeling, and he can't portray it. He can't get it down artistically. So he's now forced to draw these, paint these images, which he thinks they will not do it justice. He's got something else. There's something greater about life that he can't quite get out. Hmm. 
I think he will always be most famous for uh, uh, some of those divisionist uh, uh, London and Collier images, the images of the boats. They're really wonderful. They are wonderful. Almost in, in their slightly strange, wonky framing, make mm. them feel all the more engaged with life. Um, and really explosive and joyful. They're, they're really great. Yeah. Uh, I said earlier that they seem alive. They seem, It was that notion of being, that assertion. frail. Yes. There's a frailty to the... He's not bombastic. No, there's a, there, exactly there's there's a there's a fra- as opposed to the, the futurists, right, yes. which are very bombastic. Yeah. There's this one image of a uh, ah, boy. I don't think I'm going to be able to figure out which one it is, but there's this huge dance hall. Mm. There are lights. I'll see if I can link it. Yeah. Um, that's bombast. Beautiful, mm. but bombast. Here, there's like a frailty to this moment. Um, like at any moment, it could, I don't know, fall over mm. or something. And it's something that I don't think is shared by Vlaminck. No, absolutely um, nothing at all. No. So especially once he starts to turn a bit blue. That energy misses, is missing yeah, from Vlaminck. Yeah, he uses these swirls. They, yeah. seem, they do seem not overly bombastic, but th- th- they seem to be a little bit more self-assured. Mm-hmm. So I, I really respect uh, Derain's work, and I think he is a, a real gem in the fold movement. I think of all the things when people think of fauvism with that, you know, the chaos of colour... You know, these are wild beasts. Mm-hmm. They're meant to be, you know, something out- outrageous, something chaotic. And actually, deep down, you see that, no, 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 there's, at least in Durin, something far subtler mm. considered. Not just knee-jerk, not just intuitive. His self is reflective. It's a really wonderful moment. And it's where a, an artist uh, is also a writer. Yeah. And well, we, we encourage you greatly to go back and look at the images again after mm. and to read that third letter. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, deeply life-affirming. And uh, I think that, uh, that wraps up the Derain episode. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, see you next week. <laughs>